Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 197. In this episode, we're talking about a Jewish poll with Dr. Matthew Thiessen. Dr. Matthew Thiessen is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, and he's the author of the book that we're excited to talk about in this episode, A Jewish Paul, The Messiah's Herald to the Gentiles, published by Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Jennifer Guo, Dr. Chris Song, Dr. Logan Williams, and me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this conversation with Dr. Thiessen was a lot of fun. What were some of the takeaways that you all had from our conversation? I really enjoyed our talk. And one of the things that really stands out for me is um, this point about the silos and echo chambers of Pauline scholarship, you know, Lutheran camps or, you know, just classic evangelical readings of Paul versus a new perspective versus apocalyptic readings and Paul within Judaism readings. And, um, one of the things that I think uh, is refreshing about uh, about Matt's book is he's, as we say, an anomalous Paulinist. Paulinist. <laughs> he's an, an eccentric Pauline scholar, um, and uh, I think he would fall within that Paul within Judaism camp, but he's in going in directions that they wouldn't necessarily embrace as a group. Um, and I think that models a way forward for Pauline scholars to um you know, come to the material uh, with an open mind. Um, let Paul be weird. All of that. I think that um, that this is making some good inroads to that kind of discussion. I really like the way that Matt emphasizes that you know Judaism uh, doesn't believe things, but Jews believe things, and he emphasizes that he has insisted with his publisher that the title of his book was a Jewish Paul, not the Jewish Paul. Uh, because a Jewish Paul, he's one among many Jews who believe similar overlapping and yet distinct things. And uh, I really like the way he kind of, he therefore avoids the kind of trope of what's Paul's problem with Judaism or what's Paul's, um, you know, relationship to Judaism or Paul and Judaism, blah, blah, blah. It's just, you know, positioning Paul among many other diverse Jews. Um, so I think that avoids I found that discussion really helpful. It avoids the problem of essentialism, saying Judaism has to be X or Y in some to, you know, totalizing way. Um, and it avoids these kind of really myopic comparisons where Paul is put against, you know, masses of other Jewish texts, uh, which, you know, therefore just completely smooths over the differences even amongst those comparanda in very problematic and, and misleading ways often. So... Yeah, I appreciated that about our discussion. So one of my favorite lines that came from Dr. Thiessen in this episode is actually related to what you just said, Logan. And it was when he said, it was through not studying Paul that my mind on Paul changed. And I think he was talking about reading Jubilees, but I think that's um, such a good illustration of everything that you just said, Logan, and that um, it's so important to be familiar with um, just the variety of ancient Jewish literature um, so that, like you said, we don't essentialize uh, Judaism and that we realize that uh, Judaism was so not homogenous. And so Paul was not, you know, weirder than any other Jew. Uh, but yeah, I just love this conversation so much. And it's always so much fun to talk to Dr. Thiessen, but I'm also really excited about um, 
this book for the masses because I think Dr. Thiessen is so gifted at making um, really complicated scholarship really, really accessible. And um, in the same way that Jesus and the Forces of Death was so important for bringing to a lower shelf some of the really important insights about um, purity laws and whatnot, I think that hopefully this book will also have a similar impact for um, people who might hold to like that so-called Lutheran understanding of Paul and Judaism. I'm really excited about uh, Dr. Thiessen's book. I just, I think the sort of potential for the readership of this is really exciting. Um, there's lots of people that I want to buy a copy for. Um, and I think I particularly enjoyed the chat that we had around Making Paul Weird, which uh, is one of his chapter titles. Um, and I think that's something I'm interested in in my own work and just thinking about how do we sort of uh, make Paul less familiar to us. So uh, yeah, particularly appreciated that part of our conversation. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Matthew Thiessen. Well, Dr. Thiessen, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So we're excited to talk about your new book, A Jewish Paul. Of course, we'd love to hear what the thesis of your book is. And also, is this a controversy? Why did you need to write a book about how Paul is Jewish? Yeah, uh, the thesis is Paul's Jewish. Um, <laughs> it's a game changer. Uh, no, uh, yeah, we can dive into that. But uh, it really is just trying to stress that there's all kinds of ways of being Jewish. And while we have repeatedly talked about Paul and Jesus as Jewish, there often is a little bit of a but uh, that follows that that Paul is Jewish. And he's Jewish, but not really that Jewish, or not Jewish in this and that way. And so that's sort of what the book is trying to do, and especially introduce it to a really broad readership outside of um, the narrow confines of academia. Is the adjective uh, Jewish there, an adjective that's contrasted with something else, like a Jewish Paul as opposed to an anti-Jewish Paul, or a Christian Paul, or a Gnostic Paul, or uh, or is it just the, um, uh, or, or maybe in contrast to uh, the kind of classic, well, what, what kind of Jewish Paul, Paul? He's a marginal Jew, or he's a eccentric Jew, or he's a, you know, whatever. Like, what? how, how do you see that adjective functioning kind of in context to other things if we're kind of assuming a kind of structural take on language for a moment. Yeah, that, that sort of gets at a lot of different, I, I think, questions or issues around studying Paul. Um, so it is, it is definitely a, in contrast to an anti-Jewish Paul. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, and it's also uh, a Christian Paul. So that's the second thing. If, if I were to, you know, I really wish Pamela Eisenbaum hadn't written a book entitled Paul was not a Christian because that's the title I would have chosen. Um, except I probably wouldn't have because she, she came up with it and I would never would have thought of it. I'm not that smart. Um, I never, I didn't really know what to call this book and going back and forth with my publishers, this is sort of where we landed. And, uh, you know, I think they wanted to have the Jewish Paul and that really worried me. Um, as though there's sort of, it, it, it sort of maybe evoked a sense that there's a particular type of Jewishness that is most authentic, and that's Paul, uh, which of course is going to just lead right into the path of supersessionism again, I think. And so I really wanted to stress the the big 
uh, capital A um, ad Jewish Paul. And so going to your question about anomalous, there are all these adjectives that get used, anomalous or marginal uh, or whatever else. And the reality is he was just he was just a Jew. And like all ancient Jews had opinions that uh, at times overlapped with other Jews and at times were, you know, sort of idiosyncratic. And so um, that's what I was trying to get at. And it's just, you know, partly the vicissitudes of history and the needs of Christian theology uh, that led to a little known Jew in the ancient world who has become Paul the Apostle uh, or Paul the Herald, as the, the subtitle says. Jen has corrected us in the chat. Marginal Jew was, of course, Jesus, according to Meyer. Right. Uh, so I, I misspoke. <laughs> I meant anomalous, not marginal. I was the, thing, the one I was thinking yeah. of. It's Mike Bird who has anomalous. Anomalous, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I even mentioned the term marginal Jew in the book. Um, I'm sure that's how some people felt about, or how some people have written about Paul, very much like, like John Meyer has about Jesus. Just as a follow-up, um, Dr. Thiessen, uh, in uh, chapter three, you begin by saying that Judaism doesn't believe anything. It's Jews that believe. or And so maybe you, um, in, as a follow-up, you can sort of elaborate on some of that um, and uh, just talk about the distinctions between in, in this type of debate um, or this type of discussion, um, we tend to talk about Jews in a very specific way um, versus Judaism as, as a larger thing. Yeah, I, I, you, you named the title of that chapter and it makes me sort of uh, get a little antsy, to be <laughs> honest, um, because it could mean something really bad. And I hope that's not how people take it. But the reality is, you know, Judaism is, a, is an abstraction, as, as uh, Paula Fredrickson so wonderfully puts it, just like, just like, so not just Judaism, just like Christianity or Islam yeah. or anything else. And ultimately what it comes down to is, uh, you know, there's no such thing as this is the official formal uh, everything's correct about this Judaism or Christianity. Jews, like Christians, like Muslims, like Buddhists, like atheists, like Canadians, believe different things and do different things. And so it's really trying to stress uh, that there's not something monolithic that we should read Paul against or with, for that matter. And so, you know, I've been, I found myself within a school of, of readers of Paul referred to as the Paul within Judaism school. And even that's sort of a problematic category because it's assumes we know what Judaism is and that it's monolithic enough that we can sort of place Paul there very confidently. And, you know, I mean, Paul within Jews sounds really silly. So I get why we've done it. But um, the whole point is to really stress there's no sort of Pope of Judaism and even as we know now, popes really aren't as authoritative as we've maybe thought they were. Uh, there's lots of diversity within uh, even even more hierarchical um, religious traditions. So who's who's the person to say, well, this is Paul not being Jewish, and there he is being authentically Jewish. And I think what's most odious, it's not so much that, it's when, especially when Christians do it and make claims uh, Christian scholars that ever make claims about, well, this is authentically Jewish and that's not authentically Jewish. Uh, who are Christians to make those sorts of statements about a religious tradition that is not their own? I get that Christians do it prescriptive, prescriptively within their own tradition and maybe all religious adherents do, but um, to do it about someone else's religious tradition is, is uh, seems problematic, especially given the long 
uh, history between Christians and Jews. Well, I uh, I really enjoyed the book, and um, I really appreciated that um, it was readable. So it wasn't, you know, four volumes dense uh, about breaking down Paul. Um, and uh, but it wasn't. It was also still very sophisticated, and and um, it, it didn't dumb anything down. And so it. it you know, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was just your sort of intended audience. Like, who is the person that you hope reads the book and interacts with the book? Um, I mean, it might be a wide type of audience, but um, did you have some kind of interlo interlocutors in mind as you were going through it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the book writer's dream is it's for everybody. Yeah, Everybody's right. going to read it. And of course, uh, that's not the case. Um but, you know, when I sat down to write this, I had a number of, of editors suggest something along these lines. And initially I thought no. And then COVID hit and I didn't have any books to read. So I was sort of I'm not that many books to read, at least. I'm sort of going on. What what could I do? And so this is where I went. And I thought, you know, it's it's hard to change your mind once you become sort of established in a scholarly yeah. tradition or an intellectual school or something along those lines. And so what about writing a book that's really meant for, you know, pretty much anyone who's got some interest in Paul that they could pick up and read, whether it's, you know, um, pastors, clergy, uh, or seminarians, or undergrads, or just, you know, lay people who want to think about, um, you know, early Christian um, origins, or the Apostle Paul, or Christianity's relationship to Judaism. And so that's that's how I, you know, tried to pitch it, how, you know, how well it succeeds, I don't know, but I did everything I could to make it as accessible as possible to that kind of a readership. Dr. Thiessen, since you mentioned that it's hard to change your mind once your position is set on something, I'm curious if and how your mind changed, what view uh, of Paul in relation to Judaism did you hold before and uh, what was the journey to uh, the current view that you have? Yeah. Uh, so I would say for probably most readers of Paul, um, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian tradition where Paul was, was pretty important. Um, you know, we weren't evangelical, but we were evangelical adjacent and Paul was pretty important, but the Paul we got was a very, you know, what scholars have referred to as the Lutheran reading of Paul and that Paul is reacting to a, to a Judaism that, uh, is based on works righteousness. And so that's sort of where I came up. Didn't think anything of the sort of, um, I think it's a very casual, very unaware anti-Jewish reading of Paul. Um, and it was actually as an undergrad, I was taking a course on Paul with a professor who, um, who just loved N.T. Wright. And I was wowed at the possibility that, oh, there's, there's another way to read Paul. And so... Uh, I mean, the the whole lectures were based around Tom Wright's reading of Paul, and uh, I kept finding myself having a hard time. I wanted to buy it because I didn't like the Lutheran Paul, so to speak. Uh, I couldn't find my way to to make sense of the texts using that reading, and you know, it, it took a little longer than it probably should have for me to realize. Well, this has its own sense of uh, own problems around uh, using Judaism as a foil. And so I got to my PhD and didn't take any courses in Paul um, and had no intention of touching Paul. 
and it was as I was working on circum. I mean, I guess I, I guess maybe ultimately I did because I wanted to work on circumcision, thinking this might be an avenue into thinking about Paul on the law and Paul on Judaism. That's very specific and might help me at least break up some of the roadblocks in my own thinking around Paul. And it was as I was working on circumcision, actually, especially in the book of Jubilees, where I thought, oh my goodness, uh, <laughs> I feel like this is something I didn't know about Judaism, ancient Jews, that might help me make better sense of what Paul's trying to say about circumcision in his letters. And so um, it's really in, in sort of not studying Paul that my mind on Paul was able to change, which I think is often often the case. Can I ask you to tell us a bit more about, um, I guess, the sort of trajectories that we've seen in Paul line studies? So you've you talked about, I guess, being within Paul, within Judaism, Paul within Jews, whatever kind of better title we might come up with for it, um, and some of the other kind of schools of thought that that has eventually reacted against. But um, this feels like a bit of a horrible question, really. But <laughs> would you give us a little just like summary of that trajectory um, for people who might be less familiar so that they can kind of yep. yeah know exactly where your book is sitting? In that, that, that is great. So I mentioned the Lutheran school. Uh, which, you know, what it was just, I think, the dominant way of reading Paul, and no one said it was Lutheran, it just was. Hmm. And that's, that's uh, as I mentioned, that's this view that Paul, like all ancient Jews, or pretty much all ancient Jews at least, thought you needed to curry favor with God. And you did that by doing the Jewish law and living it perfectly or almost perfectly or pretty close to perfectly. Um, and then God would sort of reward you for your good behavior. And Paul came to realize for a variety of reasons that this wasn't working. Maybe because he thought, I have to do it perfectly and I can't. And so, oh no, I'm in big sort of uh, soteriological trouble now. Um, and it's only when Paul realizes, oh, wait a minute, there's this grace available that I can access through faith that gives me salvation uh, totally apart from my own good works. And that's sort of the Lutheran reading in a very brief nutshell. I don't think it's, you know, fundamentally Lutheran. It's just broadly Protestant, I think. It was in 1977, uh, the year of my birth. Uh, so <laughs> a very, very special year in Southern Ontario that Ed Sanders wrote a book, Paul Within Palestinian Judaism, uh, in which he tried to show, well, which he did show, I should say, that Judaism has a very robust concept of grace. Uh, God elects Israel, and out of that, Israel responds faithfully by keeping the law. And so he talked about Judaism as covenantal gnomism. There's this covenant that elicits fidelity. God's covenant elicits fidelity out of Israel. And so it's not a religion of works righteousness. And, you know, people, some people bought onto that right away, including uh, N.T. Wright and James Dunn. And they said, well, okay, Judaism's not a religion of works righteousness. Awesome. But what's, pro what's Paul's problem? with Judaism. And so then they went in search of an answer and their answer was it's um, not that it was a religion of works righteousness, but that Judaism was very ethnocentric. Um, and so emphasis on works of the law was emphasis on sort of Jewish ethnical or cultural distinctives. And that becomes Paul's problem with Judaism. And so uh, N.T. Wright is very famous for saying, I think he's dropped it at least in recent publications, but he said it early on uh, that Paul preached a gospel of grace and not race. Pithy, it rhymes, and it's a very derogatory view of Judaism, unfortunately. And so there are these two camps. 
and both are very structurally similar and that there's got to be something fundamentally wrong with Judaism. And this pull within Judaism school that I find myself a part of um, is ultimately convinced that we have to sort of do away with that paradigm of Paul finding something fundamentally wrong with Judaism, and then he leaves Judaism for this new thing, which we now call Christianity. And so the point is, um, whatever Paul's saying, it's not a criticism or rejection of Judaism, but him trying to live it out um, in his own, you know, idiosyncratic, perhaps, way, but in ways that would have made sense, at least to, to some other Jews of his day. Grace, not race, is pithy and it rhymes, but it's also very conveniently um, relevant mm. to uh, people who are dealing with uh, the guilt of, social guilt of racism yeah. and colonialism, right? Yeah. Oddly, oddly convenient that uh, Judaism then represents the thing that just Western society realizes it hates about itself most. Yeah. It's, I think that's right. I mean, that's, that's the... Sort of the unforgivable sin of our of our era. One of our, one of the unforgivable sins of our eras, right? Um, and rightly, it's evil. Racism is evil. <laughs> no one's going to deny it. But then it becomes. It, I think it's it becomes its own sort of apologetic movement um, or move. You're not talking about truth claims. You're just portraying one religious tradition very negatively um, to make your own religious tradition look better. And I think there's an apologetic move there, intentionally or otherwise. Everyone was racist until Paul. Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe Jesus. Maybe. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, Jesus was the original Paul. Um, <laughs> Matt, because you you sort of you laid out these different camps. Um, this is something that I think about a lot. Um, do you see these as sort of enclaves that just never the twain shall meet, um, or are there platforms that, in your mind, um, that you hope you know, somebody from a Lutheran perspective can can sort of is there a tent in somewhere here that that people can can at least try and 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 find agreement or common ground on, or is this just you know what either one's right and, and everybody else is wrong kind of thing? So I think there there are aspects in in all in their other camps too. It's not as, as right right uh, clean and simple as as I just narrated. Um, but I think there are aspects in 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 every little system where there there are you know nuggets that are right and and mine would be probably I hope the same nuggets I'm sure yeah. it's not all right and far from it but we're trying to make sort of we're trying to create a coherent account of Paul's thinking from uh, snippets of his of his mind so to speak and that's um, always a sort of dangerous task but I think it's it's not a bad task to be trying to work at. Yeah. I think the Lutheran reading of Paul Paul's emphasis on grace and gift is is vitally important. I just don't think you need to turn Judaism into a a foil. Yeah. For that, um, Jews also believe it. So this is you know John Barclay's recent book, Paul and the Gift. I guess it's not that recent now; it's almost ten years old. Um, yeah. I think he's right in so many ways that are really helpful, and he does a really nice job of. Um, what does he call them? The perfections of grace that I think is actually a really helpful uh, paradigm to use when thinking about ancient texts and talking about grace and uh, whether in a historical context or a theological context, Jews all believed in grace. They all believed in it in various different ways. 
there was no Judy or concept of grace in Judaism. Again, it's just a bunch of different Jews triangulating their sort of perfections differently. And that was Paul as well. I think for Paul, though, it's not like, and again, I think, I think the problem is when we make these into really ab abstract ideas, like these are a bunch of theologians sitting around over cognac and pipes, figuring out the answers to these, you know, abstract questions about grace. For Paul, it's not about some abstraction. It's about, is Jesus the Messiah? And is this where uh, God's grace is most potently available? Uh, and especially for his audience of, of non-Jews. So that's not an abstraction. That's a, that's a very, uh, you know, flesh and blood question about who this person is. And I think that's really central to Paul's thought. I wondered if you tell us if there are kind of particular um, uh, maybe myths about Paul that you're hoping to dispel with this mm -hmm. book. So you've talked a bit about, um, I guess, countering this idea that there's no concept of, you know, to have a real stereotype, but there's no kind of concept of grace in Judaism. And that's one of the kind of problems of previous readings of Paul. And whether there are other particular things that you hope readers will take away and sort of be challenged by as a result of reading your book. <laughs> that's such that is such a good question. Um, okay, so if, let's let's think here. Um, I think the centrality of Israel mm. in Jews is 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 fundamental in Paul's mind and in his sort of uh, you know conceptual world. Um, that is never like Paul is never thinking uh, Jews are in Israel are out or they're no longer important or anything like that. And I don't think he's redefining them. Uh, contrary to a lot of Pauline scholarship, so that they now include, well, now it's Christians, Jews are just Christians, or Israel's just the church. I think, so this, in part, this goes to that new perspective angle about ethnocentricity. Whatever ethnocentricity exists in early Judaism, and I think it probably existed everywhere in the ancient world, basically, Paul also is ethnocentric. Um, he doesn't ever think Israel's not important. He's really upset about the fact that his fellow Jews, many of his fellow Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He seems, at least in his writings, he doesn't seem nearly as fussed that non-Jews don't believe. Um, because that's sort of the cultural expectation. That, of course, the Jews are going to recognize their Messiah. Gentiles, well, they're Gentiles. They're so, you know, darkened in their minds, they're not going to get it. And for Paul, it becomes... It's a remarkable uh, reversal of expectations, but that's because he expects more from Israel and expects more for Israel than he does for Gentiles. So I think that's really important. Um, and then I think, you know, just uh, uh, reading Paul as anti-law is a really easy thing to do. And for those of us who've been raised in reading Paul, we get trained in those readings, and then it becomes inevitable. Um, the ruts in the road become too deep. It's really hard to break out of them. And so I think when we read Paul's letters, we have to remember that these are occasional. They're specifically addressed to non-Jews. And whatever he has to say, it's not about the Jewish law, again, as an abstraction, but the Jewish law as it applies to non-Jews. And so... You know, people have asked, I think Ed Sanders even in one of his books talks about, did Paul, would Paul have circumcised his son? And he answers, I don't, I think he says, I don't know, or maybe probably, I can't remember now. And I think, I think it's actually definitely he would have. 
because the Jewish law and Jewish customs are for Jews. Mm-hmm. Even, even after the Messiah has come in Paul's mind, that's still appropriate and fitting for them. And so it's not anti-law broadly or universally or abstractly, but an uh, anti-application or misapplication of the law to non-Jews. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I'm a big fan of your chapter titles. I think the first one is Make Paul Weird Again or Making Paul Weird Again. And so I I suppose part of your answer there is maybe alluding to what's in that chapter. But um, tell us about the ways that you have enjoyed making Paul weird or how how you hope people will see him as as being weird. Yeah. So I'm 95% certain I'm indebted to Matt Novenson uh, up in in Edinburgh on this. Um, and probably via social media ultimately. So not through Matt, Matt Novenson directly since he's too good for social media. Um, <laughs> and that's fair. He probably is. Uh, I like to get down in the mud. That's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I think it's just really easy to domesticate Paul. Hmm. And especially, you know, the more, uh, the higher view we hold of Paul, the easier it is to domesticate him. And that domestication can happen in so many different ways, but mostly just in remaking Paul in the image of our own sort of theological um, assumptions and persuasions. And so I think it's really key. And it, I mean, it's you can never perfectly overcome it, of course, uh, but how do, we, how do we work to let Paul say things that a first century Greco-Roman Jew would say, not... A 21st century uh, Canadian Mennonite would say, and so mm-hmm. part of it is it, this is, I think, really hard for certain segments of Paul's readers having the freedom to say, "I'm going to try to figure out what Paul has to say, and I don't have to agree with it. Um, I just have to be honest about it, in as much as I'm able to." And so, reading Paul and letting him say his weird. First century things. It'd be very weird if Paul said everything that we agreed with. That would be a remarkable, he would be an anomalous and marginal Jew. Uh, <laughs> uh, if so, because no one would understand him. And so uh, letting him be weird is actually just doing history. And so, uh, you know, now that I think about it, Matt Novenson's uh, talking about this is actually uh, dependent upon Mike Chin's really interesting work on sort of historical method and the goals of history and allowing the weirdness to seep into our world instead of trying to translate it into terms that make sense to us. Hmm. Dr. Teeson, going back to your earlier comment about how Paul's letters are occasional and addressed to non-Jews, maybe you could flesh that out a little bit for our listeners, because I think the typical assumption among, you know, those who grew up reading the Bible as scripture is that Paul's letters are universal, and I think that that's at the root of some of the problematic readings, and that um, once you realize that certain prescriptions and passages are actually uh, directed toward Gentiles and not universal, then a lot of things uh, become a lot more clear. So maybe you could flesh that out a little bit. I mean, so this is this, I'll start sort of in the future and hopefully try to move back uh, in an intelligible way. Paul's letters have become... Christian scripture. And you have these letters written, well, if Paul wrote them to involve some of them to individuals and some of them to little communities or groups of believers in Jesus around the ancient Mediterranean world, the first century Mediterranean world. 
And um, that's a theological conundrum. How do you take such specific and precise communications and say they're for everybody, everywhere, all time? <laughs> and so there's a problem that the church and Christians have gone through. And one of those solutions, you actually see it in the Muratorian uh, canon or fragment, um, I'm remembering correctly. Yes, I think I am. Uh, that there are seven letters addressed. Well, there are, sorry, there are letters addressed to seven churches, more than seven letters, but they're to seven churches. And seven, lo and behold, turns out to be the number of completion and wholeness. And so the Muratorian fragment says this is sort of representative of us together as a collection. They address the entire church. And so there's one of the efforts to sort of make these very precise, specific, temporally located communications universal. Um, but of course they weren't initially. And there's so there's a there's a massive theological and hermeneutical shift that has to happen in how one reads these letters to, to do that. And part of that is to, you know, make the jump from, okay, I'm going to forget or somehow get around the fact that these this is a letter addressed to people in Thessalonica in the first century and who have specific issues happening to them. And this somehow has to apply to me now, whether it's in the fourth century or 21st century or whatever. And so um, if we can bracket the sort of theological assumptions and just say, let's try to like time travel back to Thessalonica or to wherever and read these as, as much as one is able to uh, in all of our human frailty, uh, and try to imagine ourselves in those in those positions. How do we how do we receive them, or what do we hear differently? And part of that is is we hear that well, wait a minute, this isn't addressed to everybody. These letters are almost always very specifically addressed to non-Jews. Even Romans, which looks very sim much like sort of a very full theological tractate, has bookends around it in Romans one and Romans fifteen, which very explicitly say that it's addressed to Gentiles and that Paul's the apostle or the herald to Gentiles. And so it is repeatedly <laughs> signaling um, Gentile readers. Uh, Logan, Chris, I think you were there too. There was an SBL a few years back about the implicit uh, audience of Romans. And yeah. it was Paul within Judaism school, but then there were non-Paul within Judaism school people there. And they rightly kept pointing out, it's not implied. It's like as explicit yeah. as can be. Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly right, but boy, do we forget it too easily. And so um, as soon as the audience changes, your potential for hearing things differently, I think opens up in new ways. And so, you know, if you say, um, stop circumcising to a bunch of Jews, that's going to sound like stop circumcising your eight day old sons. If you say stop circumcising to a bunch of Gentiles, that's probably going to say more about adult Gentiles who are who are interested in the process of circumcision or something. And so um, that's where audience, getting the audience right, changes in the inflection of meaning in, in various statements. And I think that's really fundamental, but really hard to do. I asked you a question in that session and sounded really angry because I wrote it. <laughs> uh, and oh, I, you did. That's right. That I, was I, 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 we haven't met before. I was in the way back, and I and whenever <laughs> I do, I write my questions. Yeah. And I speak very clearly so that I don't ramble. 
and it and yeah. everyone was like you're really upset and i was like no no no, no. I, that's just how i talk when i read stuff and um yeah sorry that sounded aggro it wasn't <laughs> i wouldn't then be aggro i literally finished that i was like oh Trying <laughs> to like gotcha or something. It really was like I still don't. I don't. Anyway, I don't. I don't remember the aggro. I do. I do remember not liking how that event was set up, and that was on. Um, that's a different. That's a different question. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think there was good. There were good things that came out of that session, but I think it could have been much, much healthier for all. Yeah, I had beer. Intense. I had beer with John Barkley later that night. Oh, good. Um, and it was. Uh, it was. It was in Denver. Um. And that was, uh, right. it was all fine. Um, we had a really nice conversation, but uh, I didn't like how it sort of unfolded throughout. Um, yeah. But that sometimes happens, and it's sure. un- it's regrettable. And I think that sort of goes to Chris's question earlier. Like, we suck at staying in our siloed little Paul groups. Mm, yeah. I actually have right here on my computer. I have a PDF, not a PDF, a Word document of all the Paul sessions that are happening in, in one month in San Antonio. Right. And it is- Why are they all at the same time? It's Paul all on Sunday. not be yeah. at the yeah. same time. Yeah. We should be able to go to all of them. I am very- It creates the problem where everyone has this echo, everyone's egg in echo chamber in their own, in yeah. their own friggin' sessions because yeah. we yeah. all have at the same time. We've got to do better. Um, yeah. And I, I, I don't know how to get, again, we get calcified in our readings and we get calcified in our reading communities even in academia and I, we all suffer yeah, because of it. So how to get us past that, I don't know. It's And it's certainly nice and comfortable when I'm in my group with my readers and we all agree and everybody smiles at the end and we go for a drink and and, and, rem- and think about how everybody else is so wrong about Paul, but it's not fixing right. anything. Um, right. <laughs> well, let me develop that a little bit because one of the, one of the things that you do um, that is, that's different um is is what you've written on acts and how the mm-hmm. how 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 we read acts or how we understand acts um should shape how we understand paul now there's there's a there's a specific group of christian scholarship that would agree with that but i don't think that they would develop it the way that you are and so you're a little bit of a maybe a bit of a misfit but i wanted to at least hear you elaborate um on what you think acts is doing for our understanding of paul Am I an anomalous Paul scholar <laughs> or a marginal Paul you scholar? Marginal <laughs> scholar? An eccentric scholar even? Um, yes, yeah. Um, or just a scholar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, a Paul scholar. Um, He's in within Paulinism. <laughs> right. So this is something, again, this is one of those things, uh, Jen, I think this goes to your question about, you know, what, how has your mind changed? How have you learned? You know, I mean, apart from my youth, my early academic training was all about how the Paul of Acts and the Paul of Paul are just like fundamentally incompatible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And fine. Um, You know, that's as a historian, fine. As someone who's, who's maybe got theological commitments uh, or tries to, that that gets me a little more anxious. Um, And so, but there it was. And so it, I found it really interesting especially in Acts, well, it's Acts 15 and Acts 21, where you get a depiction of Paul that um, I think fits really well with with the sort of quote-unquote Paul within Judaism reading of Paul. And that's very much that that Paul's audience is non-Jews. And if you get the audience wrong and you get that, if you think he's talking to Jews, you're totally going to misunderstand Paul. 
Well, that's exactly what a number of people have been saying for some time. And that's what Luke says ages ago. And so, I mean, it's it's curious at the least that you have these resonances. Now, the reality is, as far as I know, in the sort of Paul within Judaism world, I'm I'm kind of the only one who thinks, hey, let's talk about acts within Judaism. Yeah. I think most people take acts, Luke acts, very much as really rejecting Judaism and and Paul depicting Paul as saying the gospel has and God has rejected you. And now I'm going to the non-Jews. I think Paul's, I think the Paul of Acts is dependent upon at least some of Paul's letters. I think Luke is using some of Paul's letters to create a narrative about Paul and take statements like uh, the gospel is for the Jews first and then for the, the Greek and is actually narrating Paul going from city to city, synagogue and Jews. Some Jews believe, and it's always some Jews believe. It's never it's never a universal blanket rejection, um, which doesn't fit with the sort of common narratives about Acts and, and its relationship to Judaism. And then some Jews not believing, and then Paul saying, fine, now I'm going to take this to the Gentiles. And so it very much looks to me like that two-stage process that Paul alludes to in Romans, although I'm not sure Paul thinks it's he's going to the Jew first and then to the Greek, but that's how Luke reads it. And so um, all of this, Chris, is to say, uh, that was a long, convoluted answer. I think this Paul within Judaism school, or sometimes called the radical new perspective, isn't radical, and it's not new. It's uh, old and canonical. <laughs> mm. um, it's, it's the canonical introduction to Paul. And I think that's really uh, ironic. And, you know, historians can do with that whatever they want. I think, you know, those who read uh, the New Testament with theological interests have to reckon with that in some way, shape or form. Um, if, if you're going to read a Paul that differs dramatically from the way Acts portrays Paul, what is, what does that mean theologically? Um, again, maybe you can just disagree with Luke, uh, but it, it is curious. Yeah. To extend the uh, canonical sort of like implications um, within the reception of the Catholic epistles, there's often been talk about how they are a kind yeah. of a corrective to Paulinism. How do you then sort of see this kind of Pauline <laughs> sandwich playing out? If uh, if you have this canonical, you have this yeah. canonical introduction to Paul that is very much a uh, Paul within Judaism framework, as you're saying. What about this sort of canonical um, sort of corrective, if you like, or at least uh, maybe challenge to some of what has been articulated as problems with Paulinism? Yeah, so, so the Catholic epistles are, are really interesting in that, um, and this is something that Robert Wall and, um, I always forget his first name, is it Dave Niehaus? Niehaus, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and others have, have talked about that uh, the canonical shape of the New Testament has Acts, where we have these uh, disciples of Jesus, and then we get Paul, and then we get to the Pauline letters, and on the other side we have letters by these pillars who uh, could be read as opponents to Paul, but the way that the canon shapes it, they're they're embracing Paul's letters and framing Paul's letters, and so in some ways they're uh, they could be a corrective, or, or at least a a guide through as maybe a, a more maybe a more charitable if if maybe too convenient a way to talk about it. Um, but you have James there, which of course you know so many people have talked about. Here's James, and it's clearly reaction reacting to Paul. In Paulinism, 
um, or at least a misinterpretation of Paul's writings on works versus faith. And, uh, you know, I think there's a truth to that. There's some aspect to James and other letters that are, that are, they have a chastening feature or function on Paul's letters or, or at least are intended to, mm-hmm. uh, of course, you know, most of us generally ignore many of us, I should say, ignore these Catholic epistles and focus on Paul and Jesus um, in Protestant circles, maybe only Paul, less so Jesus, and definitely not James. Uh, but there it is. And I think that there was this function or intended function that we have to read these again together. So it's not just an individual letter of Paul or the Pauline collection, but also these other things. So it's a very hermeneutically difficult I think task to read these texts together, but that's what uh, you know, relatively early Christians were trying to to achieve. So um, I hear people tell me that, of course, because Judaism always believes that creation is good and mm. that bodies are good, that therefore Jesus's body and and resurrected bodies in Paul have to be fleshly bodies made of the same stuff of what creation is now. So um, you have a Jewish Paul, but you also have a Jewish Paul in your reading who believes in pneumatic bodies as resurrected bodies. Isn't that just like super un-Jewish though? Of course, I I don't believe this. I'm playing a particular perspective that I disagree with from that's associated with someone yeah. uh, um we can we can name he's not uh he who shall not be named or whatever <laughs> yeah. um but uh how would you respond to this uh yeah. mr pneumatic body dr pneumatic body sorry. you know this is uh I, i've seen a couple things online that have sort of actually made those same comments and, and pointed to uh he who shall not be named um and that's I, I I that's a missed opportunity on my part when I was writing this. I wish I had given a little bit more about okay, I'm gonna throw some like non-Jewish texts at you and stuff, but I need to show you that this is actually a Jewish, a live Jewish option as well. And so yeah, I think you know, this is I think for Tom, right? I mean, he he's likes clarity and he's someone who's mm-hmm. a, who likes to join everything together. Mm-hmm. Uh I I I appreciate that in a lot of ways. And he really wanted a crystal clear account of resurrection that supported his view of what he thinks theologically what resurrection is, but what he thinks the New Testament is saying as well. And I think, you know, that we have ancient Jewish texts that don't seem to suggest a flesh and blood bodily existence after death. And so, you know, this is one of those things you have this, you have this, uh, second Maccabees passage where the seven sons who were being martyred talk about you can take my tongue or my limbs God will give them back to me uh, down the road and they take that A as like rock solid proof of the belief in a flesh and blood resurrection A is within, within that text and then B that that text is determinative or um, you know widespread amongst ancient Jews. And that's those are a couple of leaps. I guess I don't know how literally to take that language. 
I don't have any stakes in it. Possibly it's very literal. And these guys really believe these limbs are going to be chopped off and God's going to pull them up out of the ground or reconstitute them out of a fire or whatever and give them back at the resurrection. They'll have flesh and blood bodies. That's possible. But there's it's a huge leap to think this is sort of the paradigmatic Jewish view. So there it is again, that sort of Judaism believes. Well, no, ancient Jews believe and they believe different things. And so you have people like second, well, the author of second Baruch and um, well, I would argue Jubilees as well. And other texts where you have a view of the afterlife that is not a flesh and blood resurrected body. And this is where I think some slippage has happened. Um, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, we get sort of two theological explanations or readings of it. One, a disembodied soul that exists after death. Or two, a, a bodily resurrection that is flesh and blood. And there's something really slippery that has happened in that second option. And that's the sort of unquestioned acceptance or assumption that a bodily existence must be flesh and blood body. And so you'll talk, oh, Paul clearly believes in the bodily resurrection. Totally agree. That's what Paul believes. But to jump from that to flesh and blood body is where I think uh, a problem happens. And that's because a lot of ancient people, including many ancient Jews, I think, knew that flesh and blood const were constituted from some of the weaker, more malleable or um, lower elements in the cosmos, you wouldn't want to bring that kind of a body. You wouldn't want to have that kind of body in the afterlife because it would still suffer the weaknesses that are inherent to the substance. And you sure don't want to bring it into like a heavenly realm because then you become uh, an eschatological fish out of water and you're in a heavenly uh, environment where you can't breathe. Uh, and so you need the right type of body to dwell amongst the stars uh, in, in the heavenly realms. And that type of body was a body that consisted of a different type of matter, pruma, um, or, or ether, according to other uh, ancient scientists. And so I don't think there's anything anti-Jewish about it. And I don't think there's anything anti-creation about it either, or anti-material. It's just there are some, some types of matter that are better than others. And there's a hierarchy of, of being that is assumed that we don't hold anymore and we haven't held for some time. Um, but that's what Paul is playing with. And that's what other ancient people, Jews and non-Jews, were thinking about. Um, I'd much rather have, uh, you know, a car that's made out of metal. Why am I talking about a car right now? I hate cars. I would rather, bikes, let's talk bikes. I would rather have a carbon fiber bike than a bamboo bike. That doesn't mean I hate bamboo. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm anti-matter. <laughs> there, there are better types of matter for different things. And in the eschaton, the best matter um, is pneuma. And so this is what I think Paul is working at in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's fully Jewish, but it's Greco-Roman Jewish. There's a funny, uh, not funny, but there's an interesting like 8th century midrash that I use to teach to get my students to understand this, where... Um... Uh, God says to Moses, uh, hey, Moses, like, why don't you come up here? You know, come uh -huh. up here. And, um, and Moses goes, um, no, because I'm uh, Basar and Dom. I'm made of flesh and blood. 
And don't you know that I'll melt if I go up there? Because yeah. it's like everything's made of fire up in heaven. Uh, and God's like, oh, sorry, I totally forgot. Uh, yeah, Spaced on that one. Yeah, yeah space on that one. Um, okay, here, I'll turn you into a fire angel. Boom. Now you want to come up? And he's like, yeah, 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 I'll come up. And then, and then like Moses goes up to heaven. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it means when it says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. You will literally be obliterated if you were flesh and blood in heavenly space. Like you would be host. Um, my students get weirded out by that. But sorry, just reflecting on what you said. Yeah. That's not Gnostic though. It's not, is that Gnostic? Is it Gnostic? I don't know. Uh, I don't have any. I don't have any stake in the Gnostic debates. I, I think again, we, we probably aren't fair. I wonder if we're fair to the Gnostics, or if we bring some of our modern assumptions around around these very questions. Um, you know, it's at some point after Paul that in, in Third Corinthians is a fantastic example where the the scientific thinking has changed, and now it's got to be a flesh and blood body uh, that's resurrected. But it's because I think the author can't conceive of a pneumatic body existing as like a type of material that exists in the heavenly realm. So uh, once once we've lost that, then we have to come up with something else. And that's where we get sort of immortal flesh and blood bodies. Uh, I like to tell my students, you know, not all resurrection bodies are good. Uh, watch The Walking Dead if you don't believe me. <laughs> um, you don't want that kind of body forever. You want a different kind of body. And so... That doesn't mean you're anti-material or anti-creation or anti-body. You're just anti-wrong body. Just to just to tie this back to, I think, the beginning of our interview, um, this language around eschatological bodies, the resurrection in Paul, it's weird stuff. And I think this is why, again, we translate Paul into terms we understand. We don't understand anything but flesh and blood bodies. Uh, we certainly don't understand pneumatic bodies. Um, but this is, again, where I think we need to let, let Paul be weird. And understand him on his own terms and i think understanding on his own terms we we end up seeing some of the correspondences between our concerns theological concerns and his uh around eschatological bodies the resurrection the afterlife well dr teeson i think that's a great place to end it uh making paul weird again i hope people take uh, a look at your book a jewish paul uh published by baker and uh and give it a read so thanks so much for joining us appreciate your time thanks so much for having me